0: Before we dive into this episode of HRD Masterclass, I'd like to take 30 seconds to share the exciting news that we're now seeking sponsors for Season 5 to release in 2024. This is a wonderful opportunity to support the podcast series and also share your message with 3,500 HRD listeners around the world. Sponsorship options cost just $750 and $600 per episode, And for full details, contact D-A-R-R-E-N at allbypodcast.com. Right, let's start the episode.
1: Send a changed person back to an unchanged system and the system wins almost every time. And so sending them back into that unchanged system usually results in a system unready to support the learner in that process.
0: Welcome to the Human Resource Development Masterclass, the podcast series from the Academy of Human Resource Development, the organization that leads HRD through research. I'm your host, Darren Short, and throughout this second series, I'll be joined by leading authors, researchers, and scholars to explore the fundamentals of HRD and how those are changing in the 2020s. Our focus for this episode is training transfer and sustainment and we'll be looking at what we mean by training transfer and why it's an important concept in HRD, the components of the transfer system and which of those components are most likely to impact transfer, which components are most critical at the different stages of the transfer process, the important role that managers and peers play in the transfer process, and much more. To help me, I'll be joined by two leading scholars. Dr. Frederick Moya Nafuko, Professor Texas A&M University, and Dr. Wendy E. A. Rona, Associate Professor University of Georgia. In the first part of the episode, I'll chat one to one with each of them. Those one to one conversations are brought to you with the help of the generous support of our sponsor, the Educational Human Resource Development Program at Texas A&M University. Then for the second part, Fred and Wendy are together to explore their shared interest in training transfer and sustainment. That group conversation is brought to you with the help of the generous support of our sponsor, the University of Georgia Program of Adult Learning, Leadership and Organization Development. All of the content you'll hear in this episode was recorded during September, October and November of 2021. Right, let's dive in to meet our guests. Here in the first section of the episode, I'll meet one-to-one with each guest. This section is brought to you thanks to the sponsorship support of the Educational Human Resource Development Program at Texas A&M University, where HRD is defined as the process of improving learning and performance in individual, group and organisational contexts, Through domains of expertise such as lifelong learning, career development, training and development and organizational development. Building on this definition, Texas A&M graduate programs prepare scholar practitioners for professional work settings, as well as faculty positions in research universities. Their PhD is 72 credit hours, GRE not required, and Masters is 37 credit hours, and offered both online and on campus. Recent graduates have departed for jobs as corporate and government trainers, directors, faculty members, administrators, curriculum designers, and consultants. For more information, check out their website at eahr.tamu.edu. My first guest for the episode is Dr. Frederick Moya Nafuko. Professor of Educational Administration and Human Resource Development and Senior Associate Dean for Faculty Affairs, College of Education and Human Development at Texas A&M University. Dr. Nafuko has received numerous awards in recognition for his scholarship, including the Fulbright Scholarship, Academy of Human Resource Development Outstanding HRD Scholar Award and the Carnegie African Diaspora Fellowship. Dr. Nafuko's research focuses on investment in human capital development, emotional intelligence and leadership development, organizational development and change, transfer of learning, organizational learning and e-learning. He has authored, co-authored or edited numerous books, book chapters and refereed journal articles. He served as an AHRD executive board member, conference program chair and editor of the Conference Proceedings. Hi, Fred. Welcome to the Human Resource Development Masterclass. It's great to have you here in our episode focused on training, transfer and sustainment.
2: Thank you, Darin. I look forward to our conversation.
0: As you know, the topic for the episode is training transfer. And so perhaps a good place to start is by exploring what we mean by the first word there, the word training and how that fits into HRD.
2: Well, the term training refers to planned effort by an organization to facilitate learning of job-related competencies. By competency, I'm referring to the set of knowledge, skills, and attitudes that enables one to be successful at performing a number of job tasks. There are various types of training. There's basic skills training, orientation training, qualifying training, Second chance training, cross training, retraining, outplacement training, custom tailored training. So the main goal of training is for the trainees or learners to master the competencies emphasized in the training program and transfer these competencies to the workplace or real life situations. Training is important, especially at a time when up to one in four U.S. workers is considering changing jobs. Therefore, training programs aimed at employee upscaling and rescaling provide an opportunity to bring the skills of the workforce into better alignment with the needs of the employees. Human resource development as a multidisciplinary field of study refers to learning and integrated use of training and development, organization development, career development, and leadership development to improve individual, process, team, and organization effectiveness.
0: You mentioned there the significance of the transfer piece, so the idea that um, learners transfer their learning to the job and implement it in practice. So I'm wondering, what do we know about how much training actually transfers and whether training transfers a problem or not?
2: Well, Darren, you're correct. Transfer of training refers to the application of the learned knowledge, skills, and attitudes from training into the workplace. This term is used interchangeably with the transfer of learning, since learning is the main outcome of training. So learning transfer refers to the trainees' ability to integrate the obtained knowledge, skills, and attitudes into their daily work as a strategy to improve their performance. According to Association of Talent Development, while organizations spend billions of dollars on training and education initiatives every year, however, there exists failure to optimally apply competencies learned in the workplace. Yes, training transfer is a problem because while organizations continually invest in training, but, A gap exists between what is learned and the skills or knowledge transferred to the workplace. This gap is referred to as the transfer problem by learning and development scholar practitioners. In fact, empirical research estimates that between 52% and 92% of acquired learning is lost within a year following training. So this leads to failure to show returns on investment and therefore creates the training transfer problem that you just mentioned.
0: So what do we know about the factors that either help training transfer or or alternatively hinder learning from transferring to the job?
2: Well, from my own research and practice, we know that there are three main factors that either help or hinder training transfer among other factors. This reminds me of the three golden circles developed by Simon Sinek. And the first cycle, the outer cycle focuses on what? So what training content is being offered? Is this content relevant? Is this content applicable to the workplace? So if the training being offered is not relevant We already see that as a hindrance or a benefit to training. The second cycle focuses on how. How is the training conducted? Who conducts the training? Which mode of training delivery is utilized? And how engaging is the training delivered? If the how question is not settled, this will hinder the transfer of training to the workplace. And the third circle is the inner circle addresses the why. Why is the training being provided? This relates to the goals and purpose and the intended outcome of training. Trainees need to understand why they are being requested to go to training. I look at the training as an investment. We need to understand why we are making this investment. So if the what, the how, and the why of training are not addressed, this will be a hindrance to the entire training process. So
0: when we think about training and the fact that there's therefore a trainee and that trainee and that training is happening within a workplace, I'm wondering how important are trainee and workplace characteristics in determining just how much training is transferred?
2: Well, in addition to training design, which I I will mention later and training design and delivery, the characteristics of the trainee may directly or indirectly influence training transfer. So the trainees motivation to learn and apply what is learned to the workplace. Ryan and Desi as early as 2000 noted that intrinsic motivation may influence individuals to learn something new for inherent satisfaction value not related to some consequence of performance. So the motivation to transfer skills, knowledge, or behavior is driven by the trainee's confidence, perceived performance improvement, and believe that learned skills or knowledge will be helpful in solving problems at work. On the other hand, extrinsic motivation influences individuals to learn something to possibly fulfill an external requirement or avoid consequences, and not for the inherent satisfaction value. In the transfer of training, this may influence the motivation to participate in the workplace learning activities. So trainees' role in training transfer, whether they look for opportunities to apply the knowledge and skills and attitudes earned, are important. Trainee attitude especially is important because a positive attitude proactively gathers relevant information and explores external sources. This affects knowledge retention and application in different contexts after the training has taken place.
0: In one of the past episodes of the podcast series, Karen Watkins talked about the significant role that managers and particularly frontline managers have in creating learning cultures and learning organizations so i'm wondering in your experience how important the manager role is when it comes to training either transferring or not transferring into the job
2: i think managers are important because uh, while internal factors are important the trainee External factors, and by external, I'm referring to the work environment, especially the organizational culture that exists, where there's organizational support, where the manager calculates an environment where there's peer support and supervisor support, the manager can help with the transfer training in terms of providing a flexible work environment, talk of the COVID-19 pandemic era, we worked remotely for over a year and a half. And people are now asking, what do we do? Do we have to go face-to-face, or do we have to continue remote, or do we blend? So the manager can play a very important role in terms of setting the tone and providing a very flexible and supportive working environment. We also realize that the environment we work in is very complex. And so there's need for reskilling and upskilling. And so if the manager can work collaboratively and constructively with the employees and recommend appropriate training so that people understand, I mentioned at first, why people need to understand where they're going, they're being sent to training. They're not being sent there just to fix something that is wrong. They're going there to learn. The manager can also play a very important role by ensuring that there's employee autonomy to apply the knowledge, skills, and attitudes learned when they come back from training, where diversity of thought, employee dignity, and equity in terms of access to resources and professional development opportunities and promotion exist will make a difference when it comes to applying the knowledge and skill learned during training
0: implies that a trainee gets back into the workplace and when they come back after being trained, they find that they're encouraged to apply what they've learned, that um, they're recognized and rewarded for applying it. And if they struggle in applying it, that the manager is ready to step in, presumably to, to coach them or help them. If that's the case, does this imply that In thinking about training, that we also need to think about what happens after training, that we also need to think about, for example, how to prepare managers to play
2: that role. That is quite true. So managers themselves need to be champions of learning. They need to realize that uh, every organization, every institution has two types of assets, what I call tangible assets and intangible assets. Intangible assets are the people, the most valuable assets that that an organization has. So managers actually need to recognize the important role of the intangible assets and under intangible assets, is what I call human capital development, look at education and training as a form of investing in employees. And so, the need to invest in people's learning, the need to value people. Actually, it's our colleague uh, Clarita Hughes at the University of Arkansas talk, wrote a book called Valuing People and Technology. And she says, look, organizations spend millions of dollars up- upgrading technology and computers, and they rarely up- upgrade their own people. So if managers can see the value of investing in people, and look at the dollars spent in people's learning as an investment that benefits they the managers themselves that benefits the processes work processes in place and that benefits the people that will make a difference and it will address the issue of transfer of training
0: so if we think then about the role of HRD and wanting training to transfer we HRD wants that training to be implemented and for there to be an impact on the business. Coming back several steps in the process from that, how can an HRD professional then design and develop training in a way that increases the chances that the learning will actually transfer back to the job?
2: That's That's a difficult and good question at the same time. I think it reminds me of the ID model And by the ADE model, I'm talking about analysis, design, develop, implement, and evaluate. And that's where we began this conversation. So let me briefly talk about the needs analysis phase of the ADE model. For HRD professionals to design and deliver effective training programs that can transfer to the workplace, there has to be what I want to call call a triggering event why the need for training, the actual organizational performance is less than the expected organizational performance, then there exists a performance gap. So HRD professionals need to determine the cost of the performance gap. Most times, leaders of organizations might think training is the issue, but unless you do an organizational analysis, the HRD professional will not be able to determine what the issue is. Therefore, the elimination of the, of the gap becomes a need, and therefore a training needs analysis should be the first step before we think of training. There are training and non-training needs, and each of them are identified and solved differently hence the importance of organizational needs analysis. The next step is the training design phase. And so the HRD professional needs to think about creating, that's the highest level in terms of, of learning, creating something is the highest level. So they need to create training objectives or the intended learning outcomes of the training and then provide specific direction for what content will be covered during the training and how the content will be delivered. They also need to specify employee and organizational outcomes that should be achieved as a result of training. And then identify the factors needed in the training program to facilitate and transfer back to the job. And this takes me to the third phase, which is the development phase. So an HRD professional needs to be able to formulate an instructional or a training strategy to meet the set training objectives. There's need to specify the content for training, the instructional methods that will be used to deliver content, the materials that will be required, the equipment, the media, the internet infrastructure, for example, or if it's a face-to-face training, there's need to identify all the materials that will be needed and then have this inter- in, in an integrated coherent and well-organized training plan. And this leads me to the implementation phase and the HRD professional then needs to think about all aspects of training program and how they come together during this phase and then conduct a dry run and a pilot of the program before implementing and this leads me to then the final stage, the evaluation phase. The professional needs to think about outcome evaluation to determine the effects of training on the trainee, the job and the organization. What I would like to call return on investment. So there has to be a well-intentioned professional planning for training to be effective during delivery. And finally, for those who have received training to be able to transfer to the workplace.
0: And in your experience, when HRD professionals do that, is it, is it typical for them to think about training transfer, or do you tend to find that too often they constrain their thinking to do for example, needs analysis and design and development just around the skill or the competence without thinking about the transfer piece?
2: I would say it's a process. There's what we call scholar practitioners, a track in the Academy of Human Resource Development. So if you're thinking of a trainer, a scholar, who is just beginning, when I reflect back, when I first started doing my training, Organizations would approach me and I would go thinking, I'm going to fix the problem by training. So it's a journey I have developed over time. And I'm sure you and other scholar practitioners know that it's a process. A younger professional would think exactly what you've said. My training, the best is going to to solve the problem. An experienced professional who has worked with many organizations for profit and non-profit will think differently. They are more reflective, they are more realistic, and they will seek buy-in because the leadership of the organization is important. You mentioned the idea of the manager. If the leadership does not support the implementation of the knowledge and skills and attitude learned during training, most times we may not be successful as consultants or as trainers. So I think it is... a it's a process that comes with experience, expertise, and uh, doing what I would want to call experiential kind of training where the, the, the trainee is empowered during the training process. And when they return to the workplace, they want to put that into reality.
0: Well, Fred, thank you so much indeed for your time today. I really enjoyed our conversation on training transfer and really appreciate you taking time with us.
2: You are most welcome, Darren. I equally enjoyed interacting with you.
0: Well, please stay with us and we'll have you back later in the episode for our group conversation with Wendy. And for now, thank you so much indeed.
2: Most welcome.
0: My second guest for the episode is Dr. Wendy E. A. Rona, Associate Professor at the University of Georgia. Her work has focused on strategic alignment in organizations, systems that support performance, talent management, organization development and change, and foundations of HRD. Wendy has published over 50 articles, chapters, and papers, and received numerous awards recognizing her scholarship including the Richard A. Swanson Research Award for Excellence and the Early Career Scholar Award. Wendy served as President of the Academy of Human Resource Development from 2016 to 2018 and was Editor-in-Chief of Advances in Developing Human Resources from 2004 to 2007 and was Founding Chair of AHRD's Program Excellence Network. Hi, Wendy. Welcome to the Human Resource Development Masterclass. It's great to have you here in our episode focused on training, transfer and sustainment.
1: Hi, Darren. It's so great to be with you today.
0: So as a place to start, how about we focus in on transfer of learning? So when you reflect on that, what do you think are the challenges that we currently face? You
1: know, I think... Dr. Nafuko did such a great job focusing on some of the key aspects of transfer of learning challenge, especially as related to that design of the learning experience. I think I'd like to focus our time on more of the challenge that I see from my perspective that really guides a great deal of work that I do in the field of HRD. In fact, I'd like to start by sharing one of my favorite quotes that really shifted my work and my whole career path. In a book written by Rumler and Brace in 1995, uh, they, they stated this quote, send a changed person back to an unchanged system, and the system wins almost every time. Now, Rumler and Brace, they weren't the first people to come up with that idea, but the way that was stated, it just left an indelible mark on me, and it actually launched me into a quest to learn so much more about that Uh, And you'll feel that and how it impacted me in terms of what I want to talk about today, because to me, that quote really sums up the biggest challenge we have. That is, even if the learning or training experience is expertly crafted and deeply impactful for the individual, we in L&D or HRD fundamentally send a changed person, or at least one who has the potential to be changed back to what is quite likely an unchanged system. That is the system that is the same as before when we sent the employee to that training session or to learn something new. And so sending them back into that unchanged system usually results in a system unready to support the learner in that process. So to me, transfer of learning is more of an organizational development imperative as much as it is a challenge for L and D.
0: So you use the term organization development imperative there. And so for anyone listening who is new to the concept of OD, could you say a little bit about what organization development is and why you see learning transfer being related to it?
1: Sure. Well, OD is uh, commonly associated with HRD really ever since the 1980s. And it's really related to our work because it's fundamentally about improving organizational effectiveness and health through plan change. And so we use behavioral science knowledge to facilitate interventions so we can systematically assist an organization to move towards its desired outcomes. So at least from my perspective, OD can help us move the lever on challenges related to transfer of learning by working to change the system that learners go back into in order to really support that learning transfer process powerfully.
0: When I think about what happens in organizations typically is they send individual employees off to training because they're perceived as lacking skills and knowledge. And then they're sent back into that system so I'm wondering to what extent could it be that that system was actually part of the problem in the first place, and it wasn't a situation where individuals were lacking in knowledge and skills?
1: Absolutely. We've known for a long time that the system, that is the organization, impacts employee performance in profound ways. In fact, there's an entire field of study and practice called performance improvement, or back in the day, Some people might have referred to it as human performance technology. That grew out of the work of Thomas Gilbert, who published a really seminal text in 1978. And the the key contribution of that book is particularly relevant for us in our conversation today, because he helped awaken us to the idea that how a person performs and what we can accomplish in the workplace is impacted more by the environment than the individual's knowledge or skills. This introduced at the time, a real seismic shift in how we're thinking about that relationship between the organization and the individual. And it really resonates with me. In organizations today, we spend a great deal of time and resources on state-of-the-art recruiting and hiring and staffing processes. If we actually trust those processes, uh, organizations are hiring amazing individuals individuals that are highly qualified to do the jobs for which they're being hired. And as Fred discussed earlier, the best organizations are investing wisely in those people's professional development. And indeed often we're sifting through that talent pool and selecting individuals that have learning agility or the capacity to continuously learn as a key competency. So if, again, if we really trust those processes, why are we so quick to rush people into training all the time? Uh, It just doesn't really add up for me. We should be focusing, according to Gilbert and a host of theoreticians and practitioners that came after him, we should first assume that the system surrounding the individual is somehow at play here.
0: So if we then view learning transfer as a system and that the individual is surrounded by this system, as you've just described, what do you view as the components within that system? And how do we know which of those components are most likely to impact transfer?
1: You know, one of the reasons I'm on this podcast with you is because I was a part of a research team supporting the work of doctors Elwood Holton and Reed Bates in the late 1990s. I've been a soldier, advocate and researcher working on this issue of transfer of learning ever since. Really all throughout the 1990s, many people were trying to better understand the learning transfer process and the transfer system that affected it. Doctors Holden and Bates were one of the first and certainly the most successful as we can now see nearly 25 years hence at operationalizing the theory and evidence-based practice that was accumulating at the time, so we could really begin to apprehend what that transfer system looks like. They developed a learning transfer system inventory, which assesses learners' perspectives about the factors that affect transfer. It has since been translated into 17 different languages and used by hundreds, maybe even thousands of organizations in that process, the instrument has been refined and consistently and progressively validated. And most importantly, studies have been done that evidence that the LTSI, the Learning Transfer System Inventory Scales, are correlated with, or even actually predict transfer learning. So That's always exciting for us researchers. So we really do know what those catalysts and or potential barriers to transfer are. Of course, I'm not saying that the learning transfer system inventory is the only way to understanding the learning transfer system, but it is a validated and reliable way that's solidly rooted in research and theory. So according to that framework, there are 16 different factors. 11 of those are very specific to the knowledge and skills and abilities that a learner is learning in that training program or that learning experience. And five of the 16 are sort of more general to the organizational culture or climate. I think it's easier to talk about them in five major categories. So the first category actually, Fred really managed earlier in our conversation and that's that program design. The first factor is transfer design. So how effectively Has that training program been structured to really foster application? Does the content that we're teaching match the context in which the training works? Quite related to this is the second factor, which is content validity. And this is really the extent to which the content reflects the actual performance requirements. The next category is learner characteristics. So this is really about the learner themselves and sort of how they show up into this experience of the learning and the transfer of learning. So first of all, readiness, right? This is the third factor. Are they really prepared to enter into this training and this change process that is upon them? The second one in this category is performance self-efficacy. It's a fancy word, but what that really means, it's the extent to which the learner believes they can actually change, right? So am I confident that I am capable of even making the change that I'm being asked to as a result of this learning experience? The third factor in this category is uh, motivation to transfer. So this has to do with the direction, intensity, and, and persistence that a learner has towards using what is learned. And then finally, the fourth factor in this category is personal capacity. This is you know, just what it sounds like. Does the learner have the time, energy, mental space that they need to make the changes that are actually gonna be required? The third category is what I like to term work processes. And there's two factors here. One is transfer to effort performance expectations. And that's sort of a very formal way of getting at the extent to which the learner believes that the effort that they have to put in to this transfer process will actually lead to the changes that are intended, right? So kind of do I believe it's worth it to go to all this effort of trying to make this change? The second factor in this category is opportunity to use exactly what it sounds like and actually one of the most perplexing challenges that I face when I'm working around transfer of learning. I can't tell you how many trainees I meet along the way that we are teaching them certain skills that they will have no opportunity to use anytime soon in their real work. The fourth category has to do with the interpersonal relationships or the key stakeholders that are around us as we engage in transfer of learning. And there's four factors here. Uh, three of them are fundamentally tied up in the critical role of the manager in the transfer of learning process. The first one is performance coaching. Um, that is, you know, how actively uh, will people around us, managers as well as others, provide indicators about our performance and how we're doing in changing that performance? The next two are sort of the two sides of the coin and that's supervisor support or supervisor sanctions or opposition. So this is of course the extent to which a learner believes that their supervisor will actively support and reinforce what they're learning and trying to transfer. And of course the flip side of that is the extent to which the individual might perceive negative responses when a learner tries to apply new skills. Finally in this category, we have peer support. Uh, We know increasingly how important developmental relationships are other than simply the manager. So our peers, our mentors, our colleagues around us, um, various matrixed organizations that we're a part of, we have lots of relationships around us and learners need to know that those peers are going to support their change process that they're going to go through in the application of that learning. And finally, the fifth category, uh, I'll term loosely under the guise of organizational culture. The first factor under this category is the general sort of resistance to change that is in our organizational environments. So if a learner perceives that the prevailing group norms are going to resist or discourage the skills that we're trying to apply, uh, we're going to be less likely to want to apply those skills. The next one in this category is performance outcome support. And this is this is more related to my job performance more generally and it's just the extent to which a learner actually believes that changes in their job performance, not just their transfer process but their job performance overall actually leads to valued outcomes outside of this process. The third and fourth factor in this category are also two sides of a coin and that's positive personal outcomes and negative personal outcomes. And this is really the extent to which I believe in the positive that applying the training or the learning that I've, I've garnered is going to result in positive outcomes. The flip side of that is we also want to feel as, as learners that not applying what we're learning is going to have negative outcomes for me or for other people who don't do it, right? So this is about the culture that we send people back to. And if, if we're rewarding positive, if we were positively rewarding use of those new skills, And are we saying to the people who aren't trying to change their behaviors that that's not okay? So I know it's a very brief introduction to a lot of complex factors, but that's the framework um, that we really know matters around this transfer of learning process.
0: So thank you for taking us through all of the specific factors and What I'm wondering now is from all of the research that's been done on transfer, are there any pointers to specific factors becoming more important or impactful than other ones?
1: I'm so glad you asked that question. (laughs) I wish I had a very solid answer for you. The, The simple answer is no, or based on empirical evidence, we don't quite know yet we're really uh, still in the elementary stages of trying to explore that particular question in detail. However, what research we do have, I can absolutely say reinforces that it's the network of factors, that is the transfer system in all of its complexity that matters here. So while our intuition or, or even certain research here or there may steer us towards feeling like One of these is more critical than the others until we have really strong evidence otherwise. I advise HRD professionals to focus on the system of the whole 16 factors and then really work to align and strengthen each of those to support the transfer of learning. That is, we have to take what we call a transfer directed approach and really intervene on all of those factors and create that most optimal system to support transfer. In fact, Burke and Hutchins in 2008 said that our support for this transfer of learning process has got to be iterative and pervasive. I think that's a very powerful statement. You know, related to your question too, I'd love to add just another dimension to our conversation today that I don't think we talk enough about as related to transfer of learning. And that is that transfer of learning is a process. It, it sounds obvious, but I think we need to unpack that a little more.
0: So if, if it is a process, then yeah, let's unpack it. And I'm imagining as we do that, some of it has to do with how you define or understand what transfer of learning is.
1: Absolutely. There are so many ways to define transfer of learning. You know, we tend to think about it as the extent to which what is learned in training is applied to the job and enhances job-related performance. But that's sort of simplistic. However, in actuality, it's a lot more complicated than that. So of course we know there are dozens of theories that aim to explain how adults learn. So that in and of itself is interesting. You and I, we may define the transfer of learning process differently depending on how each of us actually defines learning. That, that may be way too much to get into here for our limited time, but it's certainly worth pondering more. Suffice it to say your preferred way of understanding learning, whether that be from a perspective of behavioral, cognitive or social theories of learning, would and should necessarily influence how we even think about the transfer of learning process. Also, we can't treat transfer only as an outcome that can be measured at one point in time. A lot of studies or evaluations of transfer measure it only in terms of whether it occurred or it didn't, or they measure it at one predetermined time following a learning experience. However, that view of transfer of learning actually, I think, ignores the process that individuals go through to make what we learn a part of what we actually do and who we are. Transfer of learning is not like flipping a switch. People don't work like that.
0: So as a final question, what advice do you have for HRD professionals who are starting to consider the process of transfer in their own organizations?
1: One of the things we mentioned a little bit earlier in our conversation, I think one of the most strategic things that we can do in HRD is seriously consider whether training is the right intervention. We cannot expect that learning, much less transfer of learning, is gonna happen if the training isn't relevant, necessary, and if there is not a strong stimulus for the individual to meaningfully engage in actually changing their skills and behavior around that competency. And if that's not perceived, to have the potential to contribute to stronger performance in their current or future roles. Number two, I want to really encourage uh, HRD professionals to learn a lot more about this learning transfer system and how it affects that individual's developmental change process. So again, taking that long view of transfer learning as an intensive change process, understanding that change trajectory, and really taking steps to make the intended behavior or performance change more explicit. So that both the organization and the person who has to engage in that change process knows what there looks like and feels like. Related to that, a quest to understand those 16 factors that we were just able to briefly review here today and start thinking and exploring, hypothesizing about which factors might be more relevant at various stages of that change process. And finally, Three quarters of the 16 factors that we explored earlier in this podcast are all things that the manager of the learner has direct influence around. We have got to raise the expectation that managers must engage in architecting and deeply supporting the transfer of learning process. So we have to partner with those organizational leaders, help them translate what performance outcomes are really hoped for as a result of this learning, and then help them to envision that performance more tangibly so they can help the learner develop a bridge between the current and future state that they're hoping for as a result of this transfer of learning.
0: Well, Wendy, thank you so much indeed for your time today. It's been great having this conversation with you about learning transfer.
1: Thank you, Darren. I look forward to more conversation.
0: Wonderful. Well, stay with us and we'll have you back in the next section of the episode for our group conversation with Fred. Up next, we have our group discussion, where my guests are together to discuss their shared passion for the episode's topic. This discussion is brought to you thanks to the sponsorship support of the University of Georgia, Mary Francis Early College of Education, Department of Lifelong Education, Administration and Policy, whose program of adult learning, leadership and organization development equips learners to gain deep knowledge and skills to lead learning and change, to help adults, teams and organizations thrive with their blended and online Masters of Education, innovative hybrid executive doctorate of education and world-class research training in their PhD program. They also have graduate certificates in organisation coaching and transformative leadership. Using their unique framework that emphasises the theory and practice needed to strategically and holistically develop healthy, sustainable organisations, learners gain a mastery of multiple areas, including adult learning and training, organisation development and change leadership, group development and problem solving, talent management and development, and Career Development and Coaching. To find out more, check out their website by doing a Google search for UGA space LLOD. You'll find them at the top of the search results. Welcome back to the Human Resource Development Masterclass. Our focus for this episode is training, transfer, and sustainment, and I've already met one-to-one with Fred Nafuko and with Wendy Rona. And for the final section of the episode we're all together for our group chat so welcome back fred and wendy
2: greetings it's great to be back
0: so for this group discussion i'd like to expand a little on some of the topics that we explored in our one-to-ones and also raise a few new ones and to start with i'd like to ask you about the scale of the challenge from training transfer and and specifically if transfer is such a challenge Why do organizations still train when they know that some of it, if not much of it, may not actually transfer into behavior?
2: Well, the main outcome of training is learning. And the end goals of training and education are not achieved unless transfer occurs. Now, we live in the fourth industrial revolution era, where learning is not only necessary, a sufficient condition for success in life and work and generation z is learning more than ever and is focused on career growth so i can think of three main reasons why organizations continue to invest in training number one it is a business strategy investing in people through training is a strategic and competitive advantage decision. In organizations, learning has taken a center stage and it is essential to help people and organizations develop the knowledge and skills necessary to not only thrive, but innovate. Two, existing employee skill deficiencies in the labor market justify the need for upskilling and reskilling through learning and development. Hence the importance of talent as a renewable resource. Three, learning and development is one of the most relevant the interventions, especially when a needs analysis and an organizational analysis have been conducted and revealed the need for training. Therefore, learning is key to the success of individuals and organizations. And as Toffler, 1970, correctly stated, the illiterate of the 21st century will not be those who cannot read and write, but those who cannot learn and learn and relearn.
1: You know, I I really love Fred's emphasis there. And the last thing he said around the analysis piece, I really think in organizations too often training is used as a scapegoat strategy, some way of, I don't know, leaders uh, providing the illusion of development and fostering performance improvement without actually investing in it. (laughs) You know, so we send people off to these training sessions and we check the boxes on some checklist or learning management system. Uh, We can say, oh, they went to this many training sessions or got this many certifications this year. Uh, But to Fred's point, we're not emphasizing in that the learning that is supposed to happen and more importantly, the impact that is supposed to flow from that learning. I really think this hyper-focus on learning activities versus impact has really been a huge barrier to HRD becoming the strategic partner that we espouse we want to be.
2: And Wendy, I really like when you talk about the impact. As I noted earlier, the outcome of training is learning. And so we need to be able to demonstrate the return on investment on learning.
1: Truly that impact, indeed. I also want to build on on Fred's point there of how critical learning is to organizational success. And sort of related to that, we're seeing a shift in human resources and human resource development that I hope will take a, a much more firm hold. And that's moving from having a training plan to actually having a people strategy. Uh, So many organizations now are still lacking really clear, coherent talent development strategies that align with what the organization needs in order to achieve their strategy and be successful in their industry. So I think we're both pushing on how critical it is to have a coherent people strategy, very clear sense of how learning fits into that and enables uh, performance, results, and impact.
0: So it sounds then if if we can focus HRD activity on the right strategic initiatives um, and determine what learning is needed to move the needle, then as part of that, if we then, going back to the conversations that we were having earlier in the episode, if we can think about training transfer at each stage of the process, then we're... A, throughout all of that we're increasing the chances that learning does in fact transfer and become behavior so i'd like to dig a little into that process piece then and think about what what factors are really critical at the different stages of that process before during and and after to increase the chances that it does transfer
1: Well, of course, as I mentioned earlier, I, I wanna emphasize again, research consistently tells us that we have to worry about that full transfer system. We have to align and strengthen the dynamics around all of the 16 factors I talked about earlier in order to optimize transfer of learning. However, I also said, I do think it's extremely useful for practitioners to think about the process of that individual change that transfer of learning demands. And what we can be doing, as you said, Darren, before, during, and after. In fact, a colleague and former student who worked with me, Dr. Deidre Carmichael, she explored this very question. Uh, My answer to your question here is largely informed by that research project that we're currently writing about. So on the before the learning experience, there's a couple of things I really want to emphasize. First of all, we know that motivation to transfer learning has consistently been evidenced as the strongest catalyst for transfer. So that means that we as practitioners must focus on building that motivation. We also know that a big part of developing that motivation is taking the opportunity to disrupt the status quo. That's sort of step one of any kind of change process. Change theory tells us we have to help the learner in this case, understand why the upcoming learning experience is so important the best way to do that is helping them to orient to how the future state is going to be different from the current state that is how specifically is the way that they're doing things now on those things that we're trying to develop in that learning experience somehow less than optimal in what ways specifically is the development or improvement in those skill sets valuable how might improvement in that performance around those things matter in the short, medium, and long-term? The bottom line is the more I can understand what I'm about to learn my way through is actually needed and will help me be more effective and successful, the more I'm gonna lean into that learning experience and situate it as a critical start to changing how I do things. And, And in fact, if I can just add one more layer here, the study that Dr. Carmichael and I did pushes on this even further. We found that it's not just motivation to transfer, but also readiness to engage in the individual change process that is critical. So is the learner not only motivated to transfer the new skills, but are they also ready to experience the real challenge of creating change in behavior, (laughs) right? So I've come out of training. Am I really ready to have my way of thinking confronted, to handle through the challenges of trying to learn a new skill and managing the setbacks that are necessarily gonna occur along the way. So this is about cultivating readiness and frankly, the developmental maturity that's needed to embark on that change journey.
2: Wendy, I think I really agree with you when you emphasize the importance of the learner as before we even think of training, and learn expectations and commitment to training. And you correctly mentioned readiness to learn and the willingness to apply what has been learned. But let me also talk about during. And this is mainly with regard to training design and delivery related factors that determine transfer This may, for example, include theories and practices of human resource development, such as training needs analysis, organization analysis, job task relevance, design of training, uh, methods and mode of training delivery, the technology that will be used, talk of technology, and the importance of the digital learning period, especially with the pandemic and people having to learn how to work remotely or hybrid. So how we design training is so important to the success of transfer. And I would like to call this training efficiency, which has been found to be the number one factor when it comes to determining the transfer of training. What you just talked
0: about there is a lot of emphasis about what the process looks like before a learning intervention and during, but I'm wondering what can be done afterwards that is going to increase the chances of learning transferring.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, The research Dr. Carmichael and I did revealed three factors here that I, I think can really be helpful. The first, and probably one of the most important is opportunity to use. We know that new skills don't become part of us or habits until we try them out, usually multiple times. So, if I learn something and, and can come back to the workplace and immediately put that to use, I'll be more likely to ignite that longer term change, change process of really living into that new skill set and making it my own, adapting it in the ways that are necessary to really make it a part of how I do things. The second thing that's really key, uh, our research found, is the accountability to use what, what we've learned. <clears throat> Not only does the learner need the opportunity to use, but they also need to be held accountable for using that knowledge and skills. Will anybody, most especially that person's manager, notice if they do or don't bring a new skill to bear? If they will, the learner's gonna feel more generative pressure to take time, energy, and oftentimes a lot of risk to apply something new. And in fact, that accountability has to also move beyond the short-term or just sort of the one-off opportunity There's really gotta be a felt sense that I should aspire to make this part of the long-term approach to my work, a commitment to making it a part of my job. And then the third thing, uh, and very importantly to this after stage is how well the change is actually encouraged, supported, and accepted. And of course, most critical to this is supervisor support. As I mentioned earlier in our podcast here, Most of the factors in the learning transfer system are things that the manager has direct influence on. And the role of the supervisor after the learning experience is absolutely critical. They have got to vigorously support uh, the deeper learning and active use of those knowledge and skills. We could spend a whole hour just on that. So I guess for today, we'll suffice it to say it's critical. And also of course, support from peers is really important.
2: I think I would add research that I and Dr. Alfred and our graduate students did, we categorized it under what we call organization on workplace related factors, and you've captured very well. But I'll also add and say that uh, the post-training transfer environment is critical. And here I'm thinking about the autonomy that the employee has to apply the skills that they learned during training. And besides autonomy is the need for very flexible and supportive work environment that uh, you just emphasized Wendy. We can not overemphasize the need for feedback and reinforcement of desired behaviors, especially from the supervisors.
1: Well, that's an interesting balance too, isn't it Fred? Between this notion of autonomy, which we need, Uh, in order to sort of own and take self direction of our learning, as well as feel safe in that experimental stage. And then balance that with this notion of accountability that our research showed was so vital to have the supervisor there and present and saying, I want you to bring this over here. And I want to actively support you in that. So that's, that might be an interesting challenge for managers to think about how they balance those two things when and when and how.
0: So why don't we dig a little into the manager piece, given how critical the manager role is. And I'm particularly wondering what steps that HRD professionals can take to prepare managers for that critical role.
2: Well, first let me say this, you are correct. People managers are so important to learning transfer. Managers are responsible for the performance and growth of their teams they set expectations to be achieved and they can empower their supervisors to apply the knowledge and skills learned. According to last year's World Economic Forum report, the rapid acceleration of automation and economic uncertainty caused by the pandemic has shifted the division of labor between humans and machines, causing 85 million jobs to be displaced and 97, million new jobs to be created by 2025. This creates enormous opportunity for learning and development and HRD disciplines. So while there are many steps HRD professionals can take to prepare managers for their role, I would like to point out three main steps. Number one, HRD can prepare managers to have deep, meaningful, high-quality career conversations with their direct reports. In addition, the managers can assist teams build skills that will empower, inspire learners, managers, and executives to co-create a culture of continuous learning, for we know learning is essential for success. So LinkedIn 2021 Workplace Learning Report noted that the CEOs have become champions of learning, And when this happens, it promotes employee engagement and interest in learning. Two, based on research findings by Donvan and Desi 2011, training effectiveness was the number one factor in improving transfer of learning. HRD experts as internal or external consultants need to assist managers in improving training effectiveness within the organization. And three, given that training and design and delivery factors are important for transfer of training of learning, HRD practitioners can provide systematic solutions aimed at improving training design and delivery within the organization. Solutions such as needs analysis, organizational analysis, job task analysis, design of learning and development, methods and modes of delivery, and the use of appropriate technology and techniques, these are some areas that HRD professions can make a contribution.
0: Back when you were answering the question about critical factors in the transfer process, Wendy, you, you mentioned the important role of managers and you also mentioned peers. And so I'd like to pick a little on that peer piece. As I was actually wondering when you said that about whether we help the case of transfer by actually training peers together, so therefore like training in intact teams, for example, as opposed to what often happens right now, which is running training courses that attract people from disparate groups in the organization.
1: I love that, Darren, really for two reasons. Uh, first of all, we know from the transfer of learning research that how a new method or way of doing something is received by peers in that climate absolutely impacts this process. And we just know that even by experience, we barely need research to confirm it. Uh, if I mention to a colleague that I've learned a new way of doing something and they bemoan it and immediately say, well, that's not how we do things around here. Well, that says a lot, doesn't it? I mean, what we need is colleagues who are really excited when they hear that we learned something new. Wow, that's great. I can't wait to hear it. I can't wait to put that to use around here. Tell me more. Right. So peer support. Especially in that immediate post-learning experience, that first one or two months is just critical, and we're we, we're we're scanning our our peer system to see if this is okay to bring this into how we do things around here. You know, and even even more than that, as you you offer this suggestion, as you two have surely gleaned from things I've said earlier in this session, or just knowing me throughout our careers. I'm most interested in system change uh, and harnessing the power of the collective changes everything in organizations um, in a way that sending an individual to a training here or there just can't, you know, I, I consult with companies routinely on managing change, leading change. And I, I, I can absolutely attest to the power, for instance, of training an entire management team department or a division on a one methodology and a set of strategies to to lead change. Doing that, it it gives everyone a shared language, a shared approach, and and also wonderfully, surprisingly, um, is that it increases the peer accountability, um, that, that that same accountability we talked about earlier. You know, leadership can actually say then, this is how we're gonna do things around here and leaders can hold each other accountable for putting that new methodology or those new knowledge and skills to use. So yes, engaging in tech teams or units, that moves us in HRD towards the potential for affecting culture change. And ultimately, isn't that what we're here to do? To develop healthier and more thriving organizations that are amazing places to work.
0: So as a final question then, I'm reflecting back on the whole episode and, and both of you at different points have referenced research and what we know about transfer as a result of research. And I think you've both also called out the limitations to what we know because of research that's yet to be done. And so I'm interested in what your thoughts are around what research you'd like to see happen on transfer over the next few years?
1: You know, one thing I would really like to see on the research agenda is building on what we know about these factors that affect the transfer system. So as I said, I'm very uh, confident in resting on this framework of the learning transfer system inventory that I talked about earlier in this podcast. And we know these 16 factors and we know they've been proven to affect transfer in a positive way. I think the next generation then of research has to focus on what specific strategies we have to bring to each of those factors in order to really optimize each factor. So for instance, we know that manager support is extremely important, but do we yet know enough about specifically what and how managers have to show up in that space? Uh, What specific behaviors or strategies they have to do? And we probably know that from adjacent research, but we may not know that as related to this transfer process. And I think that that would be important to bridge. Uh, and the second thing that comes to mind is, um, you know, if we go back to that before the transfer of learning process and how important the two factors I spoke about earlier, those, the motivation to transfer and the individual readiness to actually change Uh, I think we have to know more about the individual there. I'm intrigued about how personality traits or developmental space, you know, we know a lot about adult development theory and uh, constructive development theory has emerged to be a really um, powerful paradigm to think about adults and how they develop. And I'm curious how that affects how a person shows up in this change process. So I think that could be interesting vein of research.
2: If we look at research in terms of discovery, innovation, and dissemination of solutions to challenges that we face as individuals or, or organizations, and as it relates to transform learning, I think of several important research topics. One, quantifying the value of learning is an important research topic that needs urgent attention. Learning is an intangible product, should I say asset? And as Wendy correctly noted, it is very difficult to quantify learning. Two, blended digital learning is here to stay. And we need more research on how to engage learners using digital learning platforms, how to create and sustain robust digital learning programs that can positively change organizations. We also need research on learning strategies and programs that can make a difference in terms of organizational effectiveness. And according to LinkedIn 2021 Workplace Learning Report, with a rapid shift to remote digital work, how are learning and development professionals and HR professionals supporting workers who are techno-illiterate? or less digitally literate. How will less skilled workers find new jobs in a post-COVID world? That's something that should, we should be concerned about. And I think we should engage in some research that can help provide some solutions in that area. Well,
0: unfortunately, we've reached the end of our time for today, but I wanted to say a big thank you to both of you for all of our conversations and for being a part of our discussion on transfer and sustainment. Thank you both so much indeed.
2: Well, thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Darren and Fred. It's really been a pleasure.
0: Thank you so much for joining me for the episode. It was wonderful spending time with Fred and Wendy. If you enjoyed this episode, check out all of our others. There were 11 episodes in the first season and we're releasing a further 11 here in the second. Between them, they provide access to conversations with over 50 leading HRD scholars. New episodes release weekly. To learn more about the series, check out hrdmasterclass.com And to learn about the Academy of Human Resource Development, check out ahrd.org By becoming a member, you can access extra bonus materials not included in the podcast. Also, don't forget to look into our sponsors. The Educational Human Resource Development Program at Texas A&M University. Check them out at eahr.tamu.edu. And by the University of Georgia Graduate Program in Adult Learning, Leadership and Organization Development. Check them out by searching for UGA space LLOD. You'll find them at the top of the search results. We're taking a three-week break over the holidays and New Year, and we'll return with our next episode on January the 4th. I'm looking forward to being with you in that episode. Until then, this is Darren Short signing off from the HRD Masterclass. HRD Masterclass Podcast is brought to you by the Academy of Human Resource Development and is a production of AllByPodcast.com.